With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hey y'all, welcome back to an all-new episode of Southern Gothic. Today we're going to explore some of the history and lore behind the life of Grace Sherwood, or as she's better known, the Witch of Pungo. But of course, first I've got a couple announcements to make. Now we've mentioned in the last few episodes that from August 19th to 20th, I'm going to be in Urbane, Illinois at the Dark History and Horror Convention. So I want to tell you a little bit about what that is in case you're interested in coming out and seeing me. It's an annual event that, quote, showcases the darker side of history. Some of your favorite horror characters, the paranormal, artwork, authors, comics, and all things dark and creepy. There'll be a mix of authors, artists, and podcasters, and even celebrities, actors, that are all going to be speaking and a bunch of vendors like us out on the convention floor. Now, I know my friend Bob Mata of Defense Diaries will be there. He's actually going to be talking about the Gacy tapes. So I'm excited to see him, and I hope you all come out and join us. If you're interested, I'll put a link in the show notes for you to purchase tickets. Now, I also want to take a moment to thank some of our super fans over on Patreon who contribute $10 a month to the podcast. Their generosity has been so helpful to growing the podcast and making our work possible and even getting out to some of these conventions. Now, since the year began, we've had several new people sign up that we've thanked in our credits. But right now, I want to give a shout out to some of our longtime supporters who haven't ever really received credit here on the podcast. 
One of them is Miss Shannon Corsi, who has been with us since 2019, and I was lucky enough to actually meet her a few weeks ago out here in Franklin. Another is Mr. Kurt Amaker from down in New Orleans who illustrates graphic novels. And I'm pretty sure that Kurt's been a patron with us for longer than our own mother. So, Kurt, thank you. Shannon, thank you. Uh, of course, I can't not thank other folks like Dan Myers, Kaylee Webb, and Avery Grevstad. I hope I pronounced that right. For also being longtime supporters, as well as Cindy Wiggins, Tara McElfresh, Melissa Boudreaux, and Jez Cubetta for coming aboard just a little more recently. There's also some of our friends from out in the real world, you know, outside of Southern Gothic, who know us as more than just ghost storytellers, who've generously supported us, been great friends at the $10 level. Miss Jill Garvin, Katie Price, and Ryan Schneider. Y'all, I can't thank you enough for all your support and love. Obviously, all of this helps the show financially, but honestly, all of this, all of you guys bring us so much joy to know that folks really do enjoy the work that we're doing. So... Everyone, thank you to all our supporters. Thank you. Now with that, I guess we should probably head out to Virginia and explore the history and the legend of the Wichapungo. Practice of witchcraft has a complicated history in North America. When the first European colonists arrived, they did so with an already existing concept and superstition about the practice, which they believed was an attempt to harness the supernatural to do harm to another. English Parliament criminalized the practice in 1542, decades prior to the settlement of Jamestown, so these new settlers to the region would have seen it as a very real and punishable offense. Although the most notorious and well-remembered witch trials in American history were in Salem, Massachusetts, when 19 people were executed between 1692 and 1693, it was far from the only instance of witch trials during the colonial era. Evidence exists that accusations of witchcraft began as early as 1622 in Jamestown itself, and that the scope of the hysteria was nowhere near what happened in Salem. Virginia ended up trying about a dozen cases by 1730. Salem was also not the first. From 1647 to 1663, there were at least 35 trials for witchcraft in Connecticut, sometimes referred to as the Hartford Witch Trials, resulting in 11 executions. But while these witch trials might be the most infamous, there was one woman in the colony of Virginia whose legacy has grown exponentially since her now infamous trial by water brutal practice that put her life in danger, but cemented her place in American history as the last woman to be tried for witchcraft in Virginia. A woman who 
was now known as the Witch of Pungo. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you're listening to Southern Gothic. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On Wednesday, July 10th, 1706, scores of people arrived at what is now known as Witch Duck Point on the Linhaven River in Virginia. They were there to witness a unique but brutal legal proceeding that would never again be carried out in the colony of Virginia. The trial of 46-year-old Grace Sherwood by ducking. Part humiliation and part torture, the practice of ducking had long been used by superstitious communities as a test to see if an individual accused of performing witchcraft was in fact a witch. In it, the individual is bound, sometimes even tied to a chair or weight and then dunked into a body of deep water. If the person manages to float or make it to the surface, they're deemed guilty of the alleged crime, for pure water was believed to reject evil. On the other hand, if the accused sank, or rather was accepted by the water, they were believed innocent. Either way, there was no good outcome to this barbaric procedure. If the accused lived, they were considered guilty, and punishment would ensue. But innocence clearly meant death, and their only solace was that they'd receive a Christian funeral and be buried in the church cemetery with their good name intact. So around 10 a.m. on that fateful July morning, Grace Sherwood was forced to endure this trial. First, 
She was stripped of her clothing so that several women could inspect her and ensure that she wasn't concealing something that would affect the trial's outcome. Then Sherwood was bound, hand to foot, her thumbs mercilessly tied to her big toes before she was boarded into a small boat and taken out to the deepest part of the water. All the while, onlookers eagerly watched in anticipation. How Grace was placed into the water is somewhat unclear. Some say she was methodically lowered in by the sheriff, others that she was heartlessly pushed into the depths, and some even claim that a 13-pound Bible was tied around her neck. But how she got in the water did not matter, as the crowd was shocked by what happened next. Grace Sherwood did not sink. It's unknown exactly what happened when she hit the water, whether she managed to wriggle or wrench her way out of her rope bindings and swim to shore, or if she merely rose to the surface, still entirely bound. But again, this didn't matter, because what was clear to the folks who came that day was that Grace Sherwood survived, and therefore she must be a witch. So upon conclusion of the trial, she's brought ashore and once again searched by a group of five, quote, ancient women who declared that, quote, she's not like them nor any other woman that they knew of, having two things like tits on her private parts of a black collar being blacker than the rest of her body. What these women claim they found was the mark of the devil known in lore as witch's teats. People believe that these marks, which were often nothing more than scars or birthmarks, were actually the place where a practitioner of witchcraft allowed the devil to feast upon their blood, solidifying their contract with the damned. This is what the community of elders believe they found on Grace, and it, combined with the outcome of the ducking, was enough evidence to send the case on to a higher court, located in Williamsburg. So the county sheriff was ordered to take her into custody and, quote, commit her body to the common jail of this county, there to secure her by irons. According to some, Grace Sherwood remained in jail for the next seven years, but eventually was allowed to return home to live out her final days with her family. But even in death, Grace Sherwood's legacy persists as a seemingly never-ending supply of legends has developed surrounding her life as the supposed Witch of Pungo. Of course, like many stories, there's legend and there's fact, and the truth about Grace Sherwood likely lies somewhere in between. Grace Sherwood was born Grace White around 1660 to John and Susan White. Nothing is known about Grace's early life, although it's believed that the Sherwood farm was likely a part of the community of Pungo, which is today about 10 miles south of the city of Virginia Beach. In addition, records suggest she was an only child, or at least the only one to survive into adulthood. 
is upon her father's death, she inherited the entirety of his property. It's also likely that she received little to no formal education, as in the few instances that required Grace to sign her name, she left her mark with an X. In 1680, Grace married local planter and small farm owner James Sherwood. As a wedding present, John White gave the couple about 50 acres of land, and they resided in the church parish of Linhaven and Pungo. Together, Grace and James had three sons, John, James, and Richard. In addition to working on the family farm, Grace was known to have an herb garden, something that was a little unusual for the time. And as a result, she used her knowledge of these plants to treat folks in the community when they fell ill or were injured. Some also claim that in addition to working as a healer, she also served as the local midwife. Grace was clearly a strong woman in both personality and physique. And although no paintings or drawings of Sherwood exist, some sources point to contemporary accounts that describe her as being tall, attractive, and having a good sense of humor. It's also purported that while working in the fields, Grace wore pants. This anomalous fashion choice for the era was said to frequently attract the attention of men and as a result, upset their wives. Yet these descriptions of her appearance, personality, and dress must be taken with a grain of salt. For while some sources claim that this information came from, quote, contemporary accounts, what these accounts are are not identified, and these descriptions could have originated purely out of oral tradition. Nevertheless, there was something clearly different about Grace Sherwood that encouraged confrontation with her neighbors. And over the years, she was a party to nearly a dozen lawsuits where she either had to defend herself against accusations of witchcraft or sue her accusers for slander. In the colony of Virginia at this time, trials for the accusation of witchcraft adhered to the rules set forth by England's witchcraft law of 1604. Quote, an act against conjuration, witchcraft, and dealing with evil and wicked spirits. Most cases would have been covered under the formal charge of maleficium, a Latin term for acts of witchcraft that caused harm to people or property. But notably, surviving documentation shows that the majority of witchcraft cases in Virginia were not criminal, which could result in execution, but were instead civil cases. In fact, in 1655, Lower Norfolk County actually passed a law to divert, quote, dangerous and scandalous speeches raised by some persons concerning several women in this county, terming them to be witches, whereby their reputations have been much impaired and their lives brought in question. The folks in Virginia clearly didn't want to deal with the hysteria of witch trials like in other colonial communities. So this law was meant to curb accusations, giving the person accused of witchcraft the right to sue their accuser for defamation and slander. If the accuser could not prove the person in question was in fact a witch, 
then they would be forced to pay a substantial fine. The law, however, didn't always work. In fact, it certainly didn't help Grace Sherwood. And if anything, it may have made matters worse. The earliest surviving record of Grace's legal struggles was on February 4, 1697. But it wasn't due to Grace's being accused of being a witch. Instead, James and Grace brought a suit of defamation against Richard Capps for the sum of 50 pounds sterling. Apparently, Capps began to spread rumors throughout town that Mrs. Sherwood was dabbling in the supernatural. In fact, some stories say he accused her of casting a spell on his bull, causing its death. Nevertheless, whatever Capps was saying, and to whom, it bothered the Sherwoods enough to sue. However, on the day of the court proceedings, Capps didn't appear before the judge, so the proceeding was postponed, with the intention to recommence when the court next convened. Fortunately for those involved, they must have come to some type of agreement, as the case was formally dismissed on March 3rd. But Grace's legal troubles were just getting started. Just six months after the Caps settlement, neighbors were again speaking ill of Grace Sherwood. This time, however, the gossip resulted in formal accusations of witchcraft by several individuals. First was the county constable, John Gisburn, and his wife, Jane. The couple accused Grace of having, quote, bewitched their pigs to death and bewitching their cotton. Now, it's unclear exactly what bewitching cotton is an accusation of, but it seems likely that they were blaming her for a poor harvest. Another accusation came from a woman named Elizabeth Barnes. She declared that Grace, quote, came to her one night and rid her and went out the keyhole or crack of the door like a black cat. Of course, in doing this, however, Grace somehow managed to not wake her husband, Mr. Anthony Barnes, who'd been asleep beside Elizabeth during the night in question. Either way, the Sherwoods once again went to court. On September 10th, 1698, Grace sued both the Gisburns and the Barneses for slander. According to court records, the suit claimed that the defendants had, quote, defamed and abused the said Grace and her good name and reputation. The Sherwoods asked for compensation of 100 pounds sterling from each couple, so a jury of 12 men was formed. Of course, all of the accusers pled not guilty to the charges, and in an effort to add weight to their argument, James Sherwood brought nine witnesses to testify against the statements. Following the witness testimonies, a short deliberation ensued, but the jury returned in favor of the defendants. The Sherwoods had lost both cases, and not only would they receive nothing in damages, but they were now responsible for all of the court costs. Then, in 1701, James Sherwood passed away. Without a will, Grace had to go to court to be legally allowed to administer the estate. Two appraisers were summoned to inventory the property, and the result was quite meager. It included bedding, furniture, chests, household goods, 
cider casks, tools, an old gun, a ram, six ewes, and quote, one old poor mangy scabby horse. The total value placed on the estate was 3,000 pounds of tobacco. Unfortunately for Grace Sherwood, the price of her estate was the least of her problems. Now as a widow, she was left to face life amid the continuing animosity of her neighbors, alone. And the more time that passed, the more gossip and rumors grew. Then, in 1705, the accusations came to a boiling point when Grace became involved in a physical altercation with her neighbor, Elizabeth Hill. So Grace went back to court. Although the specifics of this fight are unknown, on December 7, 1705, Grace Sherwood sued Luke Hill and his wife Elizabeth, quote, in an action of trespass of assault and battery, setting forth how the defendant's wife had assaulted, bruised, maimed, and barbarously beaten the plaintiff. Sherwood asked for 50 pounds sterling in damages, and the Hills pleaded not guilty. But after a short deliberation, the jury found the case in Grace's favor, although she was only awarded 20 shillings, or one pound, as opposed to the 50 she asked for. Obviously, the Hills were not happy with this outcome, and as a result, the following January, they filed a complaint with the court that stated Grace Sherwood had bewitched Elizabeth, and they asked the justices to investigate her for, quote, suspicion of witchcraft. Some legends say the Hills believe that Grace had caused Elizabeth to have a miscarriage, but this is notably absent from transcriptions and records indicate nothing more than pure bewitchment. Yet whether the Hills truly believed the claim or were merely motivated by revenge is unknown. Initially, Grace failed to appear before the court to answer to these charges. So the sheriff was ordered to ensure that Grace was in attendance when the court reconvened. But the justice in charge had no interest in the case and attempted to put an end to the entire situation ordering that if he continued the complaint, then Luke Hill would be ordered to pay all fees involved. But Hill was persistent and refused to abandon the claim. As a result, the investigation of Grace Sherwood on suspicion of witchcraft began. First, the court justices summoned a jury of women to search Grace's persons to, quote, make due inquiry inspection into all circumstances. This meant she was essentially stripped of her clothing and her body searched for a witch's mark. Afterward, the women presented their finding, claiming that they, quote, found two things like tits with several other spots. But notably, the foreman of this all-female jury was Elizabeth Barnes who clearly had a grudge. The court had hoped the inspection would resolve the case, as the possibility of a trial involving an actual witch was beyond what the justices of Princess Anne County were prepared for. But the results of these women forced their hand, and Luke Hill's complaint was referred to the governor's counsel. 
the governor's council then ordered Stevens Thompson, the colony's attorney general, to consider the matter and make a report. On April 16, 1706, he provided the report with the opinion that, quote, the charger accusation is too general that the county court ought to make further examination of the matter of fact. Essentially, what he was saying was that without further proof, there wasn't enough evidence to try her by the governor's counsel. Upon receipt of Thompson's opinion, the justices of Princess Anne County decided to continue the examination. Almost immediately, Grace was taken into custody and a search was ordered of her property with the intent to discover any kind of images, iconography, puppets, or dolls that tradition claimed were used in the practice of witchcraft. Yet the search yielded no results and nothing was found to bolster the accusations levied against Grace Sherwood. Then, on June 6th and 7th, 1706, Grace stood before the county justices in the capacity of a formal criminal suit. Several witnesses were brought forward, each sworn in, before proceeding to give testimony against her. But Grace offered no excuses or rebuttals, instead choosing to say little, if anything, in her own defense. What the witnesses' testimonies claimed is now unknown, but whatever it was, it prompted another jury of women to be summoned to examine Grace. But to the court's surprise, none of the women called appeared. So the sheriff was ordered to summon the women again, not to do their job of examining Grace, but to be dealt with for their contempt of court. And a new jury of women was ordered to appear. But when the court reconvened on July 5th, again, the jury of women did not appear. As a result, the court had little option but to change its tactics, and a trial by ducking was set into motion. A barbaric process that placed Grace Sherwood's life in danger. But as we know today, Grace was a strong woman who faced these charges with an almost fearless determination to prove her innocence. A trait that may have been the reason why she was believed to be a witch in the first place if not at the very least, one that helped shape the legends surrounding her in the centuries following that fateful day on the Lynnhurst River. We'll explore this and more after the break. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. 
So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000. And it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. After Grace Sherwood survived her infamous trial by ducking on July 10th, 1706, it's unknown exactly what happened to her, as there are no surviving records that claim a formal end to Grace's troubles, or even if she was in fact sent to Williamsburg to be tried by the General Court of Virginia. As a result, several outcomes may have occurred. The first... Grace could merely have spent some time in the local Princess Anne County Jail and then later have been released. She also could have spent time there and been whipped or otherwise punished physically for her purported crimes prior to release. Grace also may have been sent to the general court and examined in Williamsburg, where she would have been incarcerated in the Williamsburg Public Jail while awaiting further court appearances. If this were the case... She could have been tried and released, or been tried, found guilty, and punished by some means. However, we'll never know if she was actually in Williamsburg, as the records supporting such a claim were likely destroyed during the Civil War. What is known, though, despite whatever trials and punishments she did or did not face, Grace Sherwood did in fact survive, and she lived well into old age. Documents indicate that eight years after the trial by ducking, in June 1714, Grace received a land grant from Lieutenant General Alexander Spotswood for 145 acres of land that had once belonged to her father, John White. Unlike her husband, James Sherwood, Grace chose to make a will, dated 1733, and as such, we know that it was enacted in October 1740, leaving all of her remaining property to her three sons. Grace Sherwood was around 80 years old at the time of her passing in 1740, 34 years after she had been accused of witchcraft. Yet her death did little to set the story straight. In fact, it may have actually catalyzed the growing legacy of the Witch of Pungo. Author Joe Tennis wrote 
Even in her death, her legend persists. It's said that in her last breaths, Sherwood asked one of her sons to put her feet at her fireplace as warm ashes. The next day, Sherwood was not only dead, but also her body was gone, and all that remained the ashes was a hoofprint. Sherwood's story never died. Today, it's told a ghostly light shines on Witch Duck Bay each July at the sight of her ducking. While the legendary Wichapungo story is now well known throughout Virginia, in truth, it very likely would have been lost to time had the original colonial records of her trial not been copied in 1832 by J.J. Burroughs and donated to the Virginia Historical Society. It's unknown if Burroughs had a reason for making the copy beyond merely preserving the information, but to this day, this copy is the earliest documented proof of Grace Sherwood's infamous witch trial. Then, in 1884, the story of Grace Sherwood reached a much larger national audience when it was included in Harper's Magazine under the title, Grace Sherwood, the One Virginia Witch. The article described her as, quote, a shy, secretive maid, and her neighbors told envious stories about her. And all in all, it presented her as a victim who wept at her trial. But it also regularly identified Grace Sherwood as, quote, the witch, and the editorial freedoms taken in the description of her life may in fact be the origin of some of the more fantastic elements of lore surrounding the Wichapungo legend. The article recounts the now popular anecdote about how Grace was able to travel over water by shrinking herself down and riding about in an eggshell, even claiming that she had crossed the Atlantic Ocean to the Mediterranean Sea by this method of transport. There, Grace is said to have become enamored by the scent of rosemary growing on the shore. So she picked some and brought it home. And to this day, rosemary can be found growing in the area where she once lived. In 1914, the most definitive information regarding Grace's trials was published by George Lincoln Burr as part of his Narratives of the Witchcraft Cases, 1648 to 1706. Burr not only transcribed the original colonial trial documents, but also provides additional insight using modern English to explain what the documents are referring to. In the introduction to the section on Grace Sherwood, he gives some background information regarding witches and Virginia law and states, quote, Grace Sherwood's story has been often told and often with the generous use of imagination. Yet it wasn't until 1973 when Grace's story re-emerged into public consciousness, this time in the children's book by Louisa Venable Kyle, The Witch of Pungo and Other Historical Stories the early colonies. Interest in Grace Sherwood was back, but now she was becoming something of a local folk hero. Unsurprisingly, 
the reemergence of Grace Sherwood's tale included new elements. A 1999 newspaper article claimed that no grass would grow from where she danced naked beneath the moonlight, that she could bewitch cows and sour their milk. Some stories claimed that she was beautiful and others were jealous of her. Others that she was an herbalist and a healer. And some that she was an early advocate of women's rights. Perhaps most telling of the uniqueness of the trial against Grace Sherwood is that her story is now interpreted at Colonial Williamsburg, the Living History Museum, recreating the 18th century capital of Virginia. The event, titled Cry Witch, is a colonial courtroom drama with the description, You decide, is Grace Sherwood a witch? Question witnesses, weigh evidence, cast your vote for the guilt or innocence of the Virginia witch. Of course, whether or not the witch of Pungo was ever incarcerated in the Williamsburg public jail may never truly be known, but her legacy there will likely never be forgotten. Today, most believe that early witch trials in North American colonies were a bit absurd, nothing more than a facade for folks to punish those in the community that they viewed as the other, as they didn't necessarily fit the mold of what was an acceptable way to think or act. With this in mind, on July 10, 2006, the 300th anniversary of Grace Sherwood's trial by Ducky an informal pardon was granted to the Witch of Pungo by the governor of Virginia. The event was to, quote, officially restore her good name and acknowledge that with 300 years of hindsight, we can certainly agree that trial by water is an injustice. Yet what is particularly noteworthy about this informal pardon is that there actually is no surviving documentation Grace Sherwood was ever formally convicted of witchcraft in the first place. After all, her trial by water was not a conviction. It was merely further evidence that she may have in fact been a witch. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.